0: Get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash making gay history. That's patreon.com slash making gay history. Or just go to making and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. In 1953, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed an executive order that essentially banned gay people from federal employment. It was an incredibly paranoid time in our nation's history. The anti-communists thought they saw subversives behind every tree and traitors under every rock. So the federal government set out to fire all employees they believed threatened the nation's security, and gay people were a huge risk. Why? Because they could be blackmailed by foreign spies. And why could they be blackmailed? Because they had to keep secret they were gay. And why do they have to keep secret that they were gay? Because they could be fired from their jobs, lose their homes, even lose their families if anyone knew they were gay. Don't bother trying to figure out that logic, because it'll make your head explode. One of the people who lost his job because he was a known homosexual was an astronomer employed by the Army Map Service named Frank Kameny they had no idea what they were doing when they fired Frank. Frank wound up becoming one of the most militant and important thinkers and leaders of the LGBT civil rights movement long before it was called the LGBT civil rights movement or even the gay rights movement. So I went to Washington to interview Frank. It was a surprisingly mild early June day when I arrive at Frank's house in Washington, DC. It's a modest two-story post-war brick colonial in a leafy prosperous neighborhood just outside the center of the city. His house is a bit scruffy around the edges with a lawn that that could use some attention too. So Frank greets me at the door wearing a white button-down shirt and gray slacks. He looks like a retired scientist out of central casting, and he's a bit scruffy around the edges too. So Frank strikes me as the kind of person you'd expect to have a pocket protector in a shirt pocket filled with a half dozen pens and pencils. I don't get a tour of the house. We go directly to Frank's office. There are files and unidentifiable dust-covered piles everywhere. Frank takes a seat behind his desk. He motions for me to sit and is ready to go. I quickly clip the microphone to his shirt because I don't want to miss a word. He's already talking as if he's addressing an auditorium filled with hundreds instead of an audience of one. A lesson I learned a long time ago is that when a bulldozer is coming toward you, get out of the way. Frank was a bulldozer, and I'm going to get out of the way and let him tell his story. interview with frank kameny june 3, 1989 at the home of frank kameny in washington dc interviewer is eric marcus You will learn when you talk to me
1: that I cast my sentences by putting all the modifying clauses and word no at the beginning, and you have to listen and and go along, and ultimately you'll find what it is that I am modifying.
0: So, my tendency is to interrupt. So we, (laughs) whenever whenever you need to. (laughs) All right.
1: So, uh, I was called in and said that we have information which leads us to believe that you are a homosexual. Do you have any comment? I said, what's the information? They said, we can't tell you. And I said, well, then I can't give you an answer. You don't deserve it. And in, and in any case, this is none of your business, which got them upset because bureaucrats never like to be told that something is none of their business. That basically was the interview. Ultimately, uh, it resulted in my termination late that year. You must have been shocked. Yes, of course. And. Uh, How do they do it? Do they come into your office? Uh, no, they, they, they issue uh, the way the government does anything. They, they, they issue you a letter. And. Uh, Did they say we're dismissing you because you're a Yes, homosexual? for, for homosexuality. Such firings were not uncommon in, those, in that period.
0: Or, were you depressed by it?
1: Naturally, because I had no source of income. And uh, the, next, the next two or three years were extremely difficult. In fact, by the time I got into 1959, I was living for about eight months on 20 cents worth of food a day, which even by 1959 prices uh, was not terribly much. It was, a, it was a great day when I could afford 5 cents more and put up a, 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 a pat of butter on my um, uh, mashed potato. Meanwhile, by that time, I had decided that uh, basically what this amounted to was a declaration of war against me by my government. A, I don't grant my government uh, the right to declare war against me. And B, I tend not to lose my wars. I went through such appeal procedures as there were, which take you through the lower level of the uh, bureaucracy, and then uh, on the philosophy that ultimately the head of the executive branch of the government is the president you go to the top and I have always gone to the top on these things so I worked my way right on up without success ultimately to uh, letters to the president. I My feeling is that you always pursue things to their to a final conclusion. I was put in touch with a local attorney who had been a congressman and who was willing then having exhausted everything, my having exhausted everything, to take my case on a contingent fee basis since I had no money. In 1960, the US Court of Appeals turned it down, and he indicated that uh, he felt it was hopeless, and uh, um, uh, therefore he didn't uh, want to pursue it further. I said I did, so he gave me a copy of the Supreme Court rules, told me about filing uh, pro se documents. Pro se means for yourself. And in theory, any citizen can, any time. Uh, do anything that a lawyer will do, can do it for himself if he chooses. It's not always wise, Mm -hmm. but you have the prerogative under our system always of doing it for yourself. You're you're not required to have a lawyer. I had the the rule book. I don't know if you're familiar with Supreme Court procedure. It's a double round. You have two knocks at the door. Your first or, or or two chances. Your first effort is a knock at the door to say, will you let me in or won't you let me in? And if they say no, that ends it. If they say yes, then you prepare all your briefs and really I go at present it. Present later. Yes. And the first knock is called a petition for writ of certiorari. Right. And uh, so he gave me some other petitions. And whenever I had questions, my philosophy then as now is, I pay for the government with my taxes, therefore they are to serve me. So if I had questions, I called up the Supreme Court. or walked over there and said, here's my question. Give me an answer. Which they did very nicely, not the not the justices obviously, and uh, I ultimately drafted and filed my own petition. The government put then put its uh, disqualification of gays under the rubric of immoral conduct the word simply does not belong in any issuance in this country. Morality is a matter of personal opinion and individual belief on which any American citizen may hold any view he wishes and upon which the government has no proper power or authority to have any view at all. But more than that, you then having stated a general principle, you have to apply it very specifically and pointedly to the case at hand, and that was that in my view, homosexuality is not only not immoral, but is affirmatively moral. And that was the theme that underlay that and, and, and that was a direct address to the uh, government's policy and it had to be said, and nobody else had ever said it that I know of in, in any kind of a formal court president or or other other formal pleading and in March uh, not unpredictably came the letter as I recall it was on blue paper I still have it upstairs for signed by uh, uh, Chief Justice Warren indicating that I had been- uh, that the certiorari had been denied. All right, that ended the formal case. The battle went on for uh, uh, another 14 years.
0: What the, what the government essentially did is they turned an intellectual bookish yeah into a radical.
1: Thank you for using that word. I have had cases over the years that I've handled of meek, mild, unassertive, unaggressive people who just want to go about doing their work, and suddenly they are hit hard, they are trampled upon with the hobnailed boots, and suddenly it does exactly that, it radicalizes them, and off they go marching militantly, and case after case after case. So, anyway… So, by 61, you had become radicalized. Oh, very much so. Very much so. So, anyway,
0: oh boy, they didn't know what their so we were.
1: founded the organization. And um, now, the movement of those days, and I say this next, not critically and not uh, necessarily derogatorily, because it was a very, very, very different era. And uh, we were sick, we were sinners, we were perverts. You have your long litany of, of pejoratives. There was absolutely nothing whatsoever which anybody heard at any time, anywhere, at all, which was other than negative. Nothing. And so the movement, uh, predictably, in retrospect, uh, responded accordingly, and that was the nature of the movement. So people were frightened they had good reason to be? Well, it was not only frightened, it was simply a lack of, uh, uh, in, uh, intellectual strength. We had to defer to the experts.
0: Oh, you hated that, didn't you?
1: My answer was, we are the experts on ourselves and we will tell the experts they have nothing to tell us. But it took a few years to get that across. (laughs) The movement of those days was a very unassertive, apologetic, defensive, Kind of organization or structure, not taking strong positions, giving a hearing to everybody and saying all views must be heard, even those which were most harshly uh, and viciously condemnatory. As long as it dealt with homosexuality, they must be given a fair hearing. Drivel, and uh, I—that didn't suit my personality. And the Madison Society of Washington was formed around my personality. We characterized ourselves within ourselves within the movement as an activist, militant organization. Well, those were very dirty words in those days in, in the movement, such as it was, sixty-one and sixty-two.
0: There was no, there were, no one
1: else was except for the no. civil rights movement was just yeah just, so it was up. just beginning. But I mean, even within the gay movement, even more so, you weren't supposed to be.
0: Did you have an overall goal, a plan that you stated what you're going to do as an organization?
1: Well, that was sort of set up in our statement of purposes, which I could dig out.
0: Generally, was
1: what was it? Uh, generally, to work for gay rights, although gay rights as such wasn't necessarily the phrase of choice of those days. Right. But uh, to, to achieve equality for homosexuals and homosexuality uh, against heterosexuals and heterosexuality—that uh-huh. was equality, I guess, was so the primary thing. That theme. wasn't born in '69. Those ideas. Oh, certainly not. We lay, the '69 wouldn't have happened if we hadn't come along. But as you well know, that's not how it. Well, they're wrong. Right. They would not they, uh, we, we started to, to digress before I get back. Uh, we started picketing in here in 65, which first created the mindset uh, which allowed for gays doing openly public things and by way of demonstration as gay. There would not have been Stonewall if they hadn't already gotten uh, if the mindset hadn't already been established for that by us in '65 with our subsequent demonstrations year by year, which were widely publicized in New York at Independence Hall every Fourth of July each year after '65, and and which was being publicized in '69 in prepar- preparation for that one when Stonewall occurred, and it would never have occurred to gay people to do anything publicly if we hadn't already started it.
0: What happened to your case, though?
1: My case was dead with dead. the Supreme Court. That ended that permanently. Okay.
0: The Commission changed its rule in seventy-five. Yes. Do you recall? You must recall what uh, first hearing about that? Oh, they, uh,
1: they called me up. They knew. I mean, I by that time I was on. Uh, I speak with obvious hyperbole and figuratively on virtually daily communication with the General Counsel of the Civil Service Commission. He knew my cases, he knew other things that come along. He, uh, so people were coming he, to you he, Oh yes, he had informed me 18 months before in 73 that they were beginning the process of changing their policy, but there were a lot of minds that had to be changed inside the commission. And he informed me that it was going to come out on July 4th, except that July 4th was a holiday, so it was gonna to have to be July 3rd, very appropriately. And uh, that's when they issued the news release and the formal change in policy. July 3rd, 1975. 75, yes. Of course, in 78 under the Carter administration, the Civil Service Reform Act went through Congress and that abolished the Civil Service Commission under that name. It's the Office of Personnel Management, the OPM, changed all the laws. So that's one battle, one book. That has nicely been closed and put on the shelf as a complete success. So at this point, I'm sort of—I uh, don't know—people call me a living legend, or I've heard that uh, uh, do you like being called a living legend? It doesn't bother me. Uh-huh. Uh, no, it's, it's complimentary. Or the uh, humorously, uh, the uh, the world's oldest living homosexual. <laughs> or the grandfather or the great-grandfather of the gay movement, which which is not technically correct, as you well know. Life takes its turnings, and you don't foresee them. But ultimately, I think, uh, in retrospect, life has been more uh, exciting and stimulating and interesting and satisfying and rewarding and fulfilling than I ever could possibly have dreamed it would have been.
0: I hope that by hearing Frank's voice and a bit of his story that you have a sense of why he continues to inspire me and so many others. There are three key lessons that Frank has taught me that I want to share with you. Have confidence in your beliefs, fight for what's right, and even in the darkest of times, never ever give up. We're recording this two days after the election and part of me feels like giving up. I'm scared. I'm angry. I'm heartsick. But part of me also feels like I need to do something on my own and collectively. So I'm going to hang on to Frank's fighting spirit for inspiration and remind myself that he didn't give up. I shouldn't give up. We shouldn't give up. Not now. Not ever. No way. I have two favorite photographs of Frank that I've posted on our website at makinggayhistory.com. The first is from a protest Frank organized and led in front of the White House in 1965. So for anyone who thinks there wasn't a gay rights movement before 1969, look at that photograph. They are dressed in coats and ties for a good reason. Frank was an incredible marketer. His belief was, don't get in the way of your message. And if you wear a coat and tie and the women were in skirts and heels, which seems pretty ridiculous to our eyes, they knew, Frank knew, that you don't get in the way of your message. Frank is carrying a sign that says, we want federal honorable discharge. They weren't even fighting to stay in the military. They at least wanted honorable discharges if they were thrown out. Security clearance, because you couldn't get a job in the government if you were gay and needed security clearance, and they wanted conferences with our government officials. So you'll see that sign that Frank is carrying. The second photo is of Frank shaking President Obama's hand at a 2009 White House ceremony after signing a memorandum providing benefits to the same-sex partners of federal employees. This was before marriage equality became the law of the land. You can only see Frank from the side, but his smile and the president's smile light up the room and in 2009 Frank also got a formal letter of apology from the US government for having fired him in 1957 persistence paid off for a man who fought to break down the barriers between the federal government and the nation's gay citizens it seems fitting that Frank's extensive papers now reside in the library of Congress and that's thanks to the efforts of my friend Bob Wittick and several others Frank died on October 11th, 2011, just weeks before his house was listed in the U.S. National Register of Historic Places. You can find it online. Frank was 86. Many talented people made this podcast possible. Thank you to our executive producer, Sarah Burningham, our audio engineer, Casey Holford, and our composer, Fritz Myers. Thank you also to our social media guru, Hannah Moak, for getting the word out about us, our webmaster, Jonathan dozier Ezel, who's made our podcast website a beautiful thing, and Zachary Seltzer, the man responsible for each episode's show notes. We had production help from Jenna Weiss Berman, who believed in this podcast even before it was a podcast, and always gives me good advice. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division. Funding is provided by the Arcus Foundation, which is dedicated to the idea that people can live in harmony, we can hope with one another and the natural world. Learn more about Arcus and its partners at arcusfoundation.org. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Making Gay History on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to all our episodes on makinggayhistory.com. That's also where you'll find photos and information about each of our interview subjects, including Frank Kameny. So long, until next time.